Tonight we're talking about a bunch of stuff in Leviticus that I think a lot of people have questions about. There's a t- we're, we're preaching through Leviticus all semester and trying to understand if we can discover good news of the kingdom of God in a book that is typically like uh, you know a curveball for a ton of Christians and things like this, right? Um, and tonight we're trying to tackle a bunch of things around clean and unclean, pure and impure, holy and common. There's a ton of stuff there, and I. I We'll see how this goes. Um, so I want to start by just sharing about my first mission trip experience. So I went on my very first mission trip the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. Right around this time of the year, I was attending uh, something similar to this. It was a Tuesday night worship service. Um, I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, go dogs. And the ministry I was involved in announced these mission trip opportunities. And I thought that mission trip sounded like something for like super Christians. Uh, And I didn't really know if I was a Christian, Um, but I took this application home for this summer mission trip and I uh, I prayed about it like every day. I just put it on my desk, prayed about it. About 30 days later before Christmas, um, I had just discovered I had this deep desire to go on this trip. But get this, like when we signed up for these particular trips, we didn't know where we were going or who we were going with. So we just paid $3,000. And then they were going to send us somewhere for eight or nine weeks. That was what it was. Um, So anyway, about halfway through this trip, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, we were working in this little town outside of Belfast, Ireland. And one night I came home to this pastor's house where I was staying the night. And as I was walking upstairs to bed, I heard him call my name. And he was in this little kind of study off to the foyer on the right and staying up late to prepare for some teaching the next day. And he asked me if I would ever consider coming back like the next summer to work with him. And then if I'd ever considered being a pastor. And I totally laughed when he asked me that. And I was like, no, man, I've never thought about that. And I'm super thankful that you asked. I'll think about it. I'll, I'll pray about it. You know, that was the sort of response. What I didn't tell him is I wasn't even sure if I was a Christian yet. Like, I didn't know about that. Jesus was singularly compelling to me, and and Jesus' Christians in his church had been so compassionate and generous to me, spending time with me and checking in on me and praying for me and walking with me through a lot of struggles in my life and whatever. But, But I was really on this trip, not to like demonstrate what I believe, but I was trying to figure it out. And I thought mission trips were like, I was getting behind enemy lines to like figure it out, you know what I mean? And so anyway, so when I went to bed, I just couldn't sleep. Because he'd asked me this question that was absurd. And I kept thinking and thinking. And eventually I got up and I went outside and I sat on the front yard in the grass. And I just looked up at the stars for hours thinking about this. And I had a kind of vision. I don't know what else to call it. I had a kind of vision. And I don't know what you think visions from God are like, but here was mine. The image that came to my mind is an application or like a form. Uh, And on that form, there were spaces for my name and for like my phone number and for my mailing address. Email addresses weren't that big of a deal then, I don't think. Um, Anyway, but but it also had this one section with a bunch of checkboxes. And I needed to select one. It was like pick one, checkboxes. And up to this point, I had thought of Christianity like a kind of question that I needed to answer in my life. Like, was I a Buddhist? Was I a Christian? Was I agnostic? This seems like a pretty important thing to address because most humans throughout history have made some conclusions about these things. Um, And in the same way that I was like 6'2", or or I like 80s synthwave music, like in my imagination, Christianity was was like an optional aspect of my life and my identity. Which box am I going to select? 
But in this vision, I couldn't be, like in this, in this form, I couldn't select Jason Leonard, who's also a lawyer and a husband and a father who happens to be a Christian. I couldn't do that. I had to choose which of these things was the most important thing for my identity. And that night, I realized God was asking for me to give him everything. To be understood first and foremost as a child of the God Most High, I was being invited to be known as a Christian fundamentally, even before I was known as a husband or an introvert or a lawyer, I was invited to be known as someone who belongs to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and that shook me. I knew in that moment Jesus was not asking me to be a part of my life. He wanted all of it. And I knew the invitation was to have all of my life come under his lordship so that my new nature, my new norm, my new default settings for my mind and my heart and my actions, my body, would look more like the kingdom of God than like the kingdoms of this world. And I've been responding to that moment for the past two decades in all of this passage about clean and unclean and and pure and defiled. All of it is related to that. And we're going to see if I can make the connection. Okay, let's pray. Father, help. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. And would you do a cleansing work tonight? Do heart surgery on us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15 which Josh read tonight, Jesus tells the religious leaders, it is not what goes into your mouth which defiles you. He makes a sort of first century joke, it gets lost in translation, but he's like, it all turns up as poop. What actually defiles you is what comes out of your mouth. And when he says this, if you read the the preceding verses, it's hilarious. Like the disciples pull Jesus aside and they're like, hey Jesus, the Pharisees are super offended at what you just said. And it's not really hard to see why. Like the scriptures, particularly particularly Leviticus, say a ton of things about what goes into your mouth, defiling you. But here Jesus says it's not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out of it that defiles you. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus, his interpretation of the scripture is the standard. What he says is what it actually means, and we've got to work with that, okay? But this is so stunning that if you read the Gospel of Mark, if you read Mark's account of this same interaction, he interjects like a parenthetical statement. So this, this narrative's happening, and then there's like a parentheses part. And Mark jumps in, and he says, this is the moment when Jesus made all food clean. It's like Mark recognizes that something happened in this moment. Something mysterious. It's not just an interpretive move that Jesus does, but it might also be a whole new move in the history of the world. There was a moment in time all of it was made clean. It's when Jesus said that sentence. I don't know why that's stunning and surprising. Because baked into our belief is the fact that God spoke the world into existence. Whatever. Whatever. And that's all more than we have time to get into this evening. But we see in, what, in Jesus what was really going on in all of these cleanliness laws because of his interpretation that something about all of these laws about clean and unclean were supposed to change our hearts. Not eating pigs is somehow connected to not murdering others or gossiping about them. 
Something about bodily discharges is connected to loving your neighbor. When my kids were two years old, I did not give them access to knives. But imagine if you hear that, or imagine if somebody else upon hearing that assumed that I just somehow hate knives and think they're evil. Otherwise, I would let my kids have them. That'd be bonkers, right? Like, how depressing would the world be without blades to press and cut a clove of garlic? Or split cedar and release its smell around a campfire? If we couldn't do healing surgeries with scalpels or cut grilled cheese sandwiches into perfect triangles, like knives are marvelous things. When aided by proper use, they're wielded with life-giving motives. They're fine, they're great things, but they can also cause so much harm if they're not used well or with pure, or maybe I could say clean motives. And so I may not let my two-year-olds play with knives or fire or electrical sockets or something. I won't let them get behind the wheel of a car or, or drink alcohol. But it's not because any of those things are expressly evil. It's because I want my kids to grow and mature and know how to wield their creative energy with love. The purpose of so many boundaries and laws, perhaps all of them, are to help whatever's inside of those boundaries stay healthy and grow and mature. This is what's going on in the teachings of Jesus. The hope and plan for all the dietary restrictions and clean and unclean laws was to produce a different kind of nature in the people of God. It's all about a kind of heart surgery. And what Jesus reveals is that when the people of Israel participate in all of the practices of the cultures around them, what ends up happening is they end up confusing life and death, clean and unclean. If they look no different than anybody else outside these walls, so to speak, if they look no different than anybody else in their practices, then what comes out of their heart will probably look no different from anybody else either. And so when we encounter all these laws about animals and childbirth and diseases and bodily fluids as they pertain to clean and unclean or pure and impure and holy or common, one of the things that we should be clear about first, think like knives again for a second, is that unclean and impure and common, they're all related words, those are not sinful things. I just want to clear up something, just like uh, it's, it's a really important interpretive thing for Christians to know about these words. These are not evil things. There's something about the way that we use those words which makes them sound evil, maybe, but, but that's a different category in the biblical imagination. Something being evil is different than something being unclean. Okay, so like, for example, if a loved one dies and I must bury him, it is, a, it is loving and a morally good thing for me to honor his body and bury him. And though that would have actually made me ritually unclean because I touched a dead body, it wasn't sin. That was called unclean. And if that sounds kind of confusing for you, think about the social distancing during the pandemic. Maybe that's like PTSD, okay? But if you, if you accidentally came into close contact with someone, it doesn't mean that you've done something evil. But when you find out that you're now ritually unclean, according to the CDC... It was a loving thing to separate yourself from others who've been exposed, right? If you were like, hey, I came into close contact, you know, I have to separate, and I wouldn't be like, shame, shame, shame. You know what I mean? Like, thank you for not, you know, walking into a room with a bunch of people who have not been exposed, and now we all have to do that. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, there's unclean, and then there's moral good and evil, and those are different categories. 
When you read these words, they're not like unclean and impure and common. They're not moral categories in the Bible. When somebody or something is unclean, it doesn't actually mean they're bad. That's not what that means. But since being unclean does create separation, just like close contact did that for a lot of us, right? It's also not a good thing either. And this is the main problem with being unclean or impure. It's that things which are unclean were not not to be brought into the presence of God in the tabernacle. God can draw near, and this is really important, God can draw near to whomever God wants. God can bring near to him whomever he wants. There's some really lazy theology out there that says God can't be in contact with impure things. Literally, he can. That's what Jesus did all the time. And if God can't draw near to things which are impure or things which are evil or sinful, then none of us have hope for being saved. So God can do what God wants in these ways. But when he sets up the tabernacle, he tells his people that this is a kind of Eden, the Garden of Eden, like a kind of Eden. It's in your presence and it's supposed to shape and form your imagination for the world that I'm making. And I don't want, this is sort of, I'm just imagining God's voice in this circuit. I don't want things which don't look like what I'm up to to be present here. That will be confusing for you. One way to think about this that, that plays out in normal lives for all of us is if I come home after work, after moving like a bunch of things around in the hub or maybe it's on Tuesday nights after all this or something and, and, I'm, and I'm sweaty and I'm wearing like a junky t-shirt and sweatpants and I smell terrible but I'm about to go on a date with my wife, I understand if she's like, hey, you need to take a shower and change first. Like that makes a ton of sense to me. And I don't think that, that, that when she says that, that she doesn't love me or like me or that I did anything wrong. There's no sense that I've, I've, I've offended her or something by being sweaty and wearing like ratty clothing. I'm just not clean. And until I'm clean, we can't go on a date. And so there's this momentary separation because there's just something about the way I'm dressed or the way that I smell that doesn't image what she and I both want to image on our dates. Because the reason we go on dates is to have like a heightened romantic moment where we summon our attention for one another and we wear things and speak of things and do things which please each other. And things which get in the way of that, like unappealing clothing or, or things which distract our attentions from each other, those violate the purpose of the date and we just don't want them to be a part of it. And so we pick places where we can attend to one another. And that doesn't mean the other places are bad. They just don't represent what we want to happen on the date. You see, like that's a very normal thing. Like if I was like, I came home disgusting and Anna said take a shower and I, I was here and I was like, you guys, it's ridiculous. Like my wife and I were about to go to this super nice dinner and she wanted me to take a shower even when I had dirt all over me. That's ridiculous. You would have no compassion for me in saying that. Like that would be a very common understanding of, of this sort of thing. I mean, anyway, all kinds of things interrupt the way things get imaged. Cell phones at a dinner table around the family, all these kinds of things. Somebody in here just carrying on a conversation while I'm preaching, you know, like out loud. Like there's things which interrupt while we're all together. And in a way, Leviticus is kind of about a date with God. With his tabernacle, God is setting up this intense, heightened form of intimacy with his people. He's just freed them from slavery, and he's sending them into a new land to be a new kind of people. And what they encounter in the middle of the tabernacle is an image of Eden. It's a picture of God reigning on the earth and all things being well, and all manner of things being well. And he wants his people to know, for example, that death 
has no part in that. And so things like tombs and dead bodies and bodily discharges of blood remind us of our mortality. It's not sin. They just remind us of our mortality. And God wants us to know that when the world is made new and everything is put right, things like these will be no more. And he sets apart the space to teach them about what he's doing in the world and that there are certain things which have no business being there because they give the wrong image or impression of what God image, God's kingdom and God's image is like. And so many of the prohibitions in Leviticus can be understood in this kind of way. Why did God call these certain things unclean and then prohibit them from being in the tabernacle of his presence? Because they don't image Eden well. They don't image the new creation well. And we need a clear picture of that hope in the world. But there are some things God calls unclean which don't fit easily into a category like that. Some of you are not going to like this because our, our desire often is to have everything fit so clean and neat into a simple explanation. But look, I can see, for example, why we don't eat vultures. True, that's a, that's a biblical thing in Leviticus. Because they eat dead bodies, maybe. So that fits my like death-life paradigm, you see? Like vultures and stuff like that, they eat dead bodies. On the, they, those kind of be some, like maybe that's why it fits. But why are crickets okay and not butterflies? And you, you sort of start drawing lines and like you find out like 70% of these things do fit my grid, but 30% don't. And I don't just want to like ignore all of those things, right? So there are various arguments in both the rabbinical and Christian histories for these things. And there's no one size fits all. But, but the ones spoken about directly in Leviticus, and so this is, for some of you this won't be a big deal, but for some of you this is a really important deal because you want to know how the Bible is integrated and how these things connect and how we can make sense of, of the whole witness of the Scriptures coming together and me being faithful to that, not just picking and choosing parts. The one sort of rationale spoken about mostly in Leviticus, and the one which is most obvious, is that many of these things were related to what the culture around Israel was doing, and God told the Israelites that they were not supposed to walk in the customs of other nations before them. If you remember our scripture reading last week, that they were not supposed to be like the Egyptians from where they came, and they weren't supposed to be like the people they were going to. They were supposed to be different and set apart for God's purposes. And so, and so whether it's reasons for health or for things associated with death, or because of the way in which these people need to be distinct in a particular cultural moment, they are loaded up in Leviticus with a ton of very nuanced prohibitions about things which make them unclean. And these things cover every aspect of daily life. Birth and death and health and sickness and food. Goodness, multiple times a day, the Israelites needed to pause and reflect and consider, is this clean or is this unclean? What is holy? What is common? At every meal, there is zero ability to compartmentalize their faith. They couldn't just think about God on their day of worship or when they were bringing sacrifices. It covered everything. From the moment they got up until they went to bed, clean and unclean things were all around them. And God is heightening their attention to the fact that the whole world, in a sense is a temple to the living God and their faithfulness to and their belonging to Him is lived out in every single aspect of their lives. And we see this picked up in the New Testament, by the way. Give thanks to God in everything. 
In everything you do, in word or deed, do it unto the Lord. The imagination that's been formed in the Israelites and in the early church is that the entire world is a temple to the living God and and the whole thing is a stage upon which our faith is lived out. Everything. What you did right before this, what you're going to do right after this, not just this. Everything. This is the realization that I had outside of Belfast 23 years ago, that the whole thing is about Jesus and our belonging to Him. It's not one category in my life, it's the whole thing. And everything I engage in is shaping my heart and forming my character, and the question is ever and always whether I am being formed into the image of Christ or into the image of the idols popped up and propped up in this world. The Pharisees thought that what God, what made God's people different, and maybe that's a good question for you to think about just for a second. What is supposed to make God's people different? They're called to be different. What makes, what makes you different as a follower of Jesus? The Pharisees thought that what made God's people different and set them apart for his purposes were the foods that they ate and the ritual washings that they participated in. Mostly the things they abstained from. And Jesus said, what sets you apart is what's in your heart and what comes out of your mouth. Do you look different than the rest of the world in terms of what comes out of your mouth? Do you look different than the rest of the world because of what's in your heart? You're not unclean because you didn't wash your hands before a meal. You're unclean if what comes out of your mouth is unclean. If what comes out of your mouth are evil intentions, this is what Jesus said, right? He, he actually, almost directly, at least in, in the Gospel of Matthew, he goes in the order of the second half of the Ten Commandments, which are all commandments related to how God's people treat others. So what Jesus is saying is there's a connection between your heart and your words and how you treat others. These are all interconnected. Okay, but he kind of goes in order. Like if, um, if 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 what comes out of your mouth are evil intentions and murder and adultery and theft and lying and slander, these things have no part in the kingdom of God. They should have nothing to do with Christian communities, because Christian communities image the kingdom of God to the world. These are the things that make you unclean. And the Greek word there is the word common. You might read defiled in most of your texts, which is a good translation. The word literally means to commonize. These things commonize you, which means, in other words, doing these things make you unholy. Or, or in other words, these are the things which make you like the rest of the world and not like my people. Because you know what the rest of the world does? Like what culture throughout the history of the world wasn't filled with murder and adultery and slander and lying and theft? I want you to be different I want you to be set apart for my purposes, which are love. No evil intentions, but good intentions. Not murder, but life. Not adultery, but sexual integrity. Not lying, but truth-telling. Not slander, but building each other up with your words. This is what sets you apart. What starts in your heart comes out of your mouth. This is what distinguishes you as holy or common, as clean or unclean in the way you show off the kingdom of God in this world. This is what all these cleanliness laws are about. But Jesus does something else too. Something other than just turning this teaching on its head. The life-giving word of the New Testament is that we are clean because Jesus has spoken to us. Even if our practices are unclean, because of Jesus, we're able to draw near to God, and so he addresses our separation. 
that exists between when we're unclean. Even if the way that I've been living is like wearing dirty clothes and smelling horrible, he is right there with me. He is right there with you. We are called to wear him, to put him on, to see him as an example of what heaven on earth looks like, to show him off in the world. But we can come into a place like this. We can draw near to his table. We can come to him boldly in prayer. Even if our lives earlier today are unclean, And we can receive the gracious gift of the one who speaks a life-giving word over us and makes us clean. He can miraculously change our hearts tonight. If the Old Testament wisdom is the practices that we participate in form and shape our heart, the New Testament grace is that God does that for you every day. And then we're called to live into that. Not to draw near to him, but because he's already drawn near to us. Now let's go live like that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your son who drew near to us. Thank you for not waiting. uh, For us to get clean on our own efforts. So that we can draw near to you. Lord, my imagination has been stirred up all day just trying to imagine what it would look like if everywhere a group of Christians gathered, their hearts were different than the ways of the world. If what came out of our mouths was different than the ways of the world. If we were people who spoke words of gratitude and grace and kindness and gentleness and we were known for those things, God, that'd be amazing. I think, Lord, like the Israelites... The external disciplines, we just fail at them so much. And so we need you to send your spirit to do kind of miraculous heart surgery in us. That the words that come out of our mouth and the actions that follow look different and look more like your kingdom than like the patterns of this world. And I pray you'd send your spirit now that my friends in this room would get a vision of your kingdom and desire that more than the things of this world. They'd want their hearts changed by you. Don't let us leave here without doing some of that work, God. We're going to take a minute of silence to respond to whatever God might be doing in your heart or your mind or to discover maybe what some of that is. And if it's helpful to have a prompt, I would encourage you to think about what is one of the ways God might want to change your heart. And ask him to do it.